0: the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Avery Simpson, a special education teacher from Alberta, Canada, as we'll be discussing the points of teaching life skills. We'll also be discussing how teaching vocational skills helps with aggression and self-injury. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome back. Today's guest is Avery Simpson, a special education teacher from Canada. And first of all, welcome to the show. And how was your winter break in New Year's?
1: Uh, hey, how are you? Uh, it was quite good. My winter break was nice and relaxing. I watched a lot of Netflix, and uh, <laughs> the New Year's was pretty much the
0: same. <laughs> I heard a lot of people were heartbroken now that the uh, the Office left uh, Netflix. I don't. Did you watch the Office or no?
1: Um, I have watched it. I don't watch it currently, but I. I could be wrong, but I think in Canada, we still have it actually. Uh, and same with friends. I heard friends was leaving in the U S but I think we still have it in Canada.
0: Uh, I guess. Uh, lucky you. Lucky you. Um, yeah. any special traditions you have for the holidays or I guess any goals that you have for the new years? Um, not really
1: anything too special. We, every new year's we celebrate with our family friends. Um, but this year we were in lockdown, so we just did it virtually, which was still, um, pretty cool. And then goals for the new year's, I usually set goals and I never do them. And then I feel guilty and sad. So, um, my goal this year is really simple. Just drink more water and just try and be the best version of me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I used to, yeah, I would, uh, I guess, kind of disappoint myself when I would set goals in the New Year's. And then I guess, you know, within like 14 days, I would break them. So I kind of started trying to get ahead of the curve and set my goals uh, the month before the New Year's. And that way it would carry over into the New Year's. And uh, I mean, I would feel better about myself when I do did end up breaking them because I, I, this time I lasted, a, you know, 30 days instead of 14 days. But
1: That's you know. pretty smart because if you start a month before, then by the time you get to the New Year's, you're already killing it and doing a great job.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, most of the time I still, I do end up breaking those goals, but I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> now I'm, I am a uh, big believer in affirmations and you actually have an affirmation door in your classroom and from my understanding I think you got inspired when you read the story I believe I can by Grace Spires, right? Can you tell me more yeah. about this and I guess how the students reacted to it?
1: Yeah, so um there's a part in the book towards the end where one of the kids in the book and I, I can't remember the line exactly, I think he says like I can do it or um something really positive. And I read it to my kids and one of my kids jumped up, put his fist in the air, kind of like a superhero. And you repeated the line, like, I can do it. And then the other kids kind of copied him and did it too. And I just thought, wow, like, look at how happy and proud they are. And um, so that was kind of inspired me to do the wall or the door of affirmations. Um, and then ended up kind of being one of those things where it kills two birds with one stone, because I actually have um, one of uh, my students, she does a lot of negative self-talk, um, so this was. Kind Kind of another way to get her to practice saying positive things to herself every day without singling her out because everyone else was doing it too. So
0: it was pretty cool. Oh, that's neat. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's nice. Do you do you do affirmations yourself as well? I guess um, um, in your own time.
1: I, a couple years ago I tried it and it's sort of where I just have such a bad memory. And so it's one, it's like, it's like a new year's goal. Like I start so hard and I do it every day and then, and then you forget and
0: then you stop. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, I I try. I know some friends have those affirmation mirrors. Um, it's it's a nice idea. Um, I don't have a body mirror to do that. Um, I Mm. guess I could try and put it on the door, but, uh, what I did, I guess, pre pandemic on the way to work, I would say the affirmations, uh, you know, out loud or just had a, a podcast or some kind of recording that I would listen to on the way to work. But, um, I guess now it's a lot different now. I, I don't really do it as often as I, as I want to. Um, but yeah, I guess that could be a new, new year's resolution for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, then the story that you were talking about, um, My favorite part of that book, and I guess this is a spoiler alert, but is where the author says sometimes I am right and sometimes I am wrong. But even when I make mistakes, I learn from them and make me strong. And I do like this part because it teaches students from an early age that making mistakes is normal. We all make mistakes, even teachers, your mom, your grandpa, you know, everyone makes mistakes and it's important to learn from them. And I know this is sometimes tricky for our students to understand because they'll just get upset, but how do you help your students understand like the concept, like, oh, it's okay to make mistakes.
1: Yeah, this is um, something I have trouble with as well in my classroom. It it just seems to be ingrained in these kids' minds that mistakes are the worst thing that could happen (laughs) to them. And so sometimes I even find that they they won't even try because in their mind, it's better to just sit and do nothing than to try and fail. Um, So there is another book by Todd Parr that I read every year at the beginning. Um, I think it's called It's Okay to Make Mistakes. And so I like this book because it shows how you can turn mistakes into something else like um, a scribble on the wall or something, or maybe not on the wall on a piece of paper and he turns it into a flower or something um, or spilling milk. He says, you know, it's okay. You can just wipe it up. And so at the end of the book, it even says, um, even teachers make mistakes. And so my favorite part is I ask my students, do you think Miss Simpson ever makes mistakes? And they all are like, no, never. And so then I have the opportunity to say, actually, I do make mistakes. And then for the rest of the year, I either pretend to make a mistake, make a mistake, or if I do make a mistake, I say, remember, it's okay to make mistakes. And even Miss Simpson makes a mistake, um, which I think is awesome. Like modeling is so important at this age. So I always try and demonstrate with everything I do, just trying to be calm and collected if something goes wrong so that they see that they don't have to freak out or get upset. Um, so another example, too, like if a kid spills paint on the floor, if they do that at home, they might get a completely different reaction. They might get a like, why did you do that? You're stupid or something. Um, and so I always try and make the school reaction really calm and saying things like, it's okay. It was an accident. You know, let's just get some paper towel to clean it up. And I think modeling that kind of behavior is really important that they see that.
0: Yeah. I like the idea how you, you do model the mistakes. Um, I do that as well actually like, you know, like you, I make mistakes on purpose and, i hope my students catch them sometimes they don't <laughs> but, and then you know when you know when i do my make my mistake and i guess i i, I point it out and like i i help them like oh what can we do uh, you know kind of like your example oh i spilled milk or oh i i scribbled here what can we do and trying to help them model like the problem solving process and asking first of all what, what went wrong and then what i could do to fix this and uh I mean, both of us teach special ed, um, wait, do you teach in person or no?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm teaching in person this year.
0: Okay, good. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the only difference is, uh, you know, you're teaching in person, I'm teaching, uh, via distance learning. So, um, that's the main difference there, but basically like one, uh, lifesaver that I frequently use in the classroom, um, is these busy bins. Um, I think you call them morning tubs. Um, they're sometimes called early finishers or motor skill boxes. Uh, and since you're teaching in person, um, And uh, I guess for the whole social distancing guidelines, and I guess each student's supposed to have their own, with their own individual tasks and items, like what kind of activities do you prep for your students?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So these busy bins um, are a total lifesaver. And as you said, they have many different names. So I'm sure other people call them different things. Um, Definitely wasn't me that invented them, but it was probably (laughs) the best teacher tip I learned last year when I was teaching kindergarten. Um, But I think you can use them with any grade. I think it's, People think that they're for younger kids. But anyways, um, as you mentioned, the kids have separate tubs because we can't share materials this year because of COVID, um, but in each tub I have dice games, dominoes, play-doh, math cubes, other little STEM activities I found on Amazon. Um, I try and find ones if I'm going to buy them that have a ton of pieces that they can build with, but also that I can divide up between all my kids so that they can share without sharing. Um, and one of the ways I like to use these is every morning. It's the first thing they do when they get their indoor shoes on, which I think is, awesome because, you know, every kid gets ready at a different pace. So you have some kids who are in in two minutes with their indoor shoes on. And then you have some that are still walking in the door. Um, at a very slow pace. So while my slower kids are getting their boots off and getting ready for the day and my speeders are all ready to go with their indoor shoes on, they have something to work on until um, everyone's ready. And then I can also use these for other activities when people finish early or sometimes those awkward transition times when you have like five minutes before lunch and you don't know what to do. So we just pull <laughs> out the busy bins and they're happy to work on it because they can create whatever they want or play games with themselves. and.
0: Yeah. that's nice. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're right. So you have different kinds of students that you have those, uh, speedsters that go through everything really quick and you're, you're still yeah. like, you know, you're still barely unlocking the door to the classroom. or trying to get some of your Uh, but yeah, so I think like two years ago, so, um, our morning routine is, uh, you know, we have the kids uh, hang up their backpacks outside they grab their lunch, their food, they bring in their cubbies and then we have them unstack their chair and then, you know, Put their chair in for their desk, and then uh, we, we take the kids uh, in pairs to go to the bathroom because they they ate breakfast just before that. And so, while those you know two or three students are out in the bathroom, uh, you know the paraeducators, educator pair eds are taking them to the bathroom. I have you know other students that are in the classroom, and then that's when those busy bins come in handy. So um, you know, when there's books or or toys or even like little puzzles. Um, and you know, same thing as well. When we finish early, uh, <laughs> I don't want to have that like awkward pause. So we'll do like, all right, time for busy bins or even like the end of the day or even early dismissal. But yeah, they, they come quite in handy and you're right they are There are lifesavers and I've seen some pictures of your rooms and it looks like you like to decorate with themes. And I think one of the most recent uh, themes that I've seen is, um, back in November. Um, is there a favorite theme or or time of the year that you like preparing for? I-
1: Yeah, so themes I like to do um, just to kind of keep things interesting in the class. It's kind of fun when you they leave on Friday or something and then I stay late on Friday to switch up the theme and they come in on Monday and they're all like, oh my gosh, because the (laughs) the bulletin boards have changed. Um, The one that I'm preparing to do for January is The Mitten, which is that famous, famous book by Jan Brett about all the animals who fit in the mitten and the mitten explodes, but um, there's so many activities. You can do it with your literacy, with your numeracy, like you can just incorporate into everything. So, um, that'll be our big, our big theme for January
0: is the, the mitten. Hmm. I try and, I try and do themes as much as I can. Uh, for example, we have this curriculum called a uh, ULS unique learning system that they give for us for a special ed. Um, and then. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks this, but it, it's not really that great. But the theme that they gave us, like, for example, I think back in November, the theme was like government. I'm like, all right, what do I do with this theme? This is pretty boring. And so I tried to like really stretch it out and like you know, like for a morning circle, we would do like job of the day. I would try and do jobs, at, I guess government jobs. Um, and then... Uh, I guess even try to stretch it out as well for, for our art projects instead of like, you know, what am I going to do for government? So we did like, all right, create, I had students create their own flags or create their own like voting stickers. And I, I really try and stretch it out as much as I can. And even for music, like you know, the, the 50 States uh, for, and then what else I did, I did for math. I think we counted like coins because, you know, coins has to do with government, but yeah, I mean, I, I try and stick to a theme. It's a lot of fun, but sometimes when there's a theme that I'm forced to do and then, it I kind of gets my creative juices flowing because all right what can I really do with this um with this theme yeah. Yeah, but yeah, let's jump into our first topic, and that's uh, that's teaching life skills. And I gotta take a step back and explain to the listener what this means because life skills really revolve around, revolve around functional academic skills that have to do with everyday activities and problems like self care, money management, independence, self advocacy, physical fitness, health, personal hygiene, and telling times. These are just a few, there's like hundreds and hundreds of more, but. Basically, uh, every student has different life skill objectives and it can greatly vary with one student needing to work on maybe uh, tying their shoes or maybe another one, transportation or another one getting around their community. Um, or maybe someone needs to work on telling time or money management. It really depends on the student and ultimately teaching these life skills is to help prepare the students to handle daily tasks um, in their lives uh, without depending on adults. So like further, further, further down the line um, when they're much older. and there are three major life skills area. Um, those are daily living social skills and occupational skills. Um, um, and then I think here in the United States, when we get older, the way they classify it as well is, uh, employment, um, further education slash training. And then the last one is, uh, independent living. So, for, Avery, for for you, so when people ask you about life skills, how do you explain it? And I guess what are the most common misconceptions?
1: Yeah, so I would say life. I think you did a pretty good job, kind of uh, giving examples. Um, but yeah, life skills are pretty much what the the name is. They're skills that you use. They're everyday tasks that you use for the rest of your life. They're important to help you get by, and um, some of them can be everyday things you don't even realize you're doing, like tying your shoes or, um eating with a fork and a knife and some are more complex like cooking or as you mentioned, the money management and Um, I think many people pick these up from home or watching and learning others. And then for some of our kids, they just need a lot of extra practice, which is why we put a bigger focus on them in school. Um, so for like the younger kids, this looks like doing up a zipper on your coat, asking for help, expressing wants and needs, opening food containers, um, dressing for the weather stuff like that. And I think... The biggest misconception is that life skills, I think people think they're taught at home um, and that they're not taught at school. And I would, um, or that maybe you only teach them in a special education classroom. But um, even the things that I just mentioned, like asking for help, expressing wants and needs, um, taking turns, sharing, working in a group, all those things, those are all taught in school and especially in the early years. And they carry on to when you have a career, like working in a group and collaborating with people. Those are all. Really important life skills, and you do learn
0: them at school. And it's not just numeracy and literacy that you learn. Yeah, you're right about the misconception that like people think like, oh, this is assume that the child should know this from the household that they learn. And no, you know, the, you'd be surprised, like, uh, you know, when they come in the classroom and uh, you know they don't they don't have these least life skills, and you you really gotta teach them. Like, for example, like like the example I said earlier, like. Putting in and taking out uh, is a life skill. Um, that even finding their cubby, like all right, where's my cubby? Look for my picture, look for my name, and putting my food or my clothes or my jacket or whatever inside. You know, that's a life skill too. Like organizing, uh, identifying. Um, but yeah, is, yeah, I like how you said these. Just because um, you know, it might seem obvious. Um, you know, it might be a life skill for a particular student. So yeah. <laughs> And so I guess uh, the problem is that most families and parents are concerned, um, strictly is just about academic skills. Um, you know, if they, they worry like, Oh, you know, my, my, child should know multiplication, my child should know, you know, handwriting. Um, and I totally understand is I know there's a great importance on like the core academic skills of either math, ELA, science and history. Um, and I, I do teach and review these core contents every day with my students. Um, but, you know, you know, for example, so let me give you, so for math, like the content area is maybe adding one digit numbers, but, you know, however, if I want to turn this into a life skill, then maybe we can have a lesson on adding numbers for money management, you know, so adding pennies, so how many pennies do we have now? You have one penny, Drew has one penny, and then Samantha has four pennies. How many do we have altogether? And so I took that math application and I kind of turned it into a life skill, you know, because adding money is, is is a vital skill. You know, when our students go shopping, shopping um, they need to know do I have enough money? How much money do I have in total? Can I buy this? Uh, um, another example looking at ELA, you know we might have a lesson on high frequency words um, like walk and stop and he and she and them et etc. And so I could take this content area and then I could take it to a life skill. Um, for example, taking those high frequency words and those high frequency words might be words that we see in the community a lot, like stop or walk, you know, you know, we see these signs now oh, it's time to cross the street or it's time not to cross the street or, you know, one way. You know. So taking something like that and really turning into a, a life skill. And so there's always a struggle um, from both special education teachers and families wondering what to focus on if they feel they don't have the time to teach the core subject areas and life skills. And Uh, you might be in a situation where you want to teach the children division, but then you also need to teach them how to, you know, how to tie their shoes or how to maybe just even open their their meal packs. Because that's a big one. Like even putting the straw in a, you know, the present or their drink. So that's, that's another life skill as well. And so you know, what I would try and say to uh, these parents with these concerns is try and incorporate both of them together. That way you can make the subject area more meaningful. Um, going back to the example, you could give a lesson on preparing a meal with proportions, and then that way you can have students use division and for the ingredient measurements. and you know, half a cup of water or, you know, only a quarter of salt, etc And there you go. Just taking that life skill of division and you put it with, you know, making a meal for guests and with the correct proportion. But I mean, for you, how do you explain to families like the importance of teaching life skills?
1: Yeah, so a lot of what you said, um, luckily for me, all my parents are pretty much on the same page of understanding the importance of life skills, so I've never had to really explain it before, but um, kind of what I said before, like um, if families were asking, I would say, you know, these are life skills that they're going to use forever forever. things like working in a group that's going to be important when they graduate and they're looking for a job, zipping up a jacket, like where we live in Canada, that one is so important. When it's minus 30 degrees Celsius and you don't know how to zip up your jacket, that it can be very dangerous. So these life skills are so incredibly valuable to their future and they can't be avoided. Um, So I'd probably just reassure the families that we're not not teaching numeracy and literacy. We are, but that these things are equally as important for their future. And
0: to make it in the world so yeah and I, sometimes I, I stop what i'm doing like the lesson whatever we have planned, like whatever literacy or math and like i see students are struggling with something and i'm like all right time to teach this time to time to teach how to stack or time to teach like even how to like i had a life skill like r- right before i wouldn't break like how to match like i had so I teach, uh, via distance learning. So I had the students, I asked the families to grab a whole bunch of socks and we taught them how to match the socks. Um, that, that was a life skill, uh, as well. And so, um, then after that we taught them how to like fold it and put their socks in a ball. But yeah, I, I sometimes you just, you don't plan it and you just do it right there on the spot. Um, do you ever find yourself in situations where either you or the families worry about choosing between choosing between, all right, we got to teach his content uh, core areas or we got to teach his life skills.
1: Yeah, um, that is a good question. I do have some parents who are very concerned about their child's academic success, um, and I think that's definitely their main goal. And so I think that kind of what you're saying before, just reassuring them that you can integrate both. Um, so as you said, like, if you can turn it into a math lesson, but also be teaching life skill like That's awesome. Um, but I think that's where the, I, I don't know if you guys, we call IPP, I don't know if you call it IEP or IPP, but um, (laughs) those goals are so important and we typically make about four goals a year. So I make them two academic and two that are life skill related so that the parents are kind of, they already are in that mindset of like, okay, I need to choose two life skill goals for my kid's kid to make. Um, and so then when you work with the parents and the kids for the whole year and just establishing that goal and that skill at the beginning of the year, it's really important um, because then they're excited to see the progress and they aren't too caught up in the academic or they understand that you need to do both.
0: Yeah. I like the idea of having the, yeah. So we call them IEPs of individualized uh, education plans. So yeah. So how you put two academics and then two life skills, that's, that's a very good way of showing how, Important it is because if it's an IUPO, oh, uh, the parents must think, "Oh, this is really important." Um, yeah, I like that. Um, now with life skills, they usually start off. Or um, well, I usually start off teaching these life skills in a controlled environment, um, which is the classroom. So uh, kind of like. Our teacher preparation programs, we start off in our controlled environment, the classroom, uh, university classrooms. And then, you know, you take whatever you learn and put it in an actual classroom of your own um, or your student teaching and um, whatever K-12 classroom that is. And that's your time to shine. Basically, you know, showcase what it is you learn in your lectures or your curriculum classes and kind of the same approach I do with teaching life skills so it's in a very contained environment um when I'm working with the students usually it's in small groups and um I teach them the life skills um for example, even with the up grades, it might be like uh, applying for jobs. So, you want them to have the independent skills of looking for jobs, uh, filling out the applications, thinking about what references, um, answering the interviewing questions. So, um, in that, you might have the controlled environment in the, the small groups, you might have peers working with each other. Um, but for that example, there are certain sequencing life skills there. So some of those might be communication goals, job seeking, work habits. Uh, you know, these are all life skills that need to be taught, and it's really just chunking one big life skill into smaller tasks. Um, I like even like the tying the shoe like even lacing you know, first things first it's putting the shoe on your feet and then you know holding the ends of the laces and then crisscrossing and then tying the knot it's a lot of it's a lot of steps that that you take for a particular life skill um, and even I, I, I keep saying the same example but the, the taking the stuff out of the backpack and putting it in their cubby you know it's a lot of steps because you know a kid might just open their backpack grab it, whatever it is and they'll leave the backpack open and you know all the stuff will spill out and, you know the part of it is all right you gotta close the zipper uh, and then go to your cubby look for your name you know grab your stuff etc so thought a lot of chunking um when it comes to life skills do you, do you use a lot of chunking strategies when using or when teaching life skills
1: um you know i think i do i wasn't quite sure Uh, like I haven't actually heard the word chunking before, but with the way you explained it, I think, I think that I do. (laughs) Um, Even for things like, um, yeah, like when you were talking about the backpacks and zipping up and stuff and how it's actually so many steps and things like their grasp, like you don't, realize it but maybe they can't grasp things yet and they're working on their hand strength and so doing that first or doing other activities that help with their grasp first before they can even ha- like get the hold of their zipper and, and zip it up because maybe that's why they were struggling to learn at first kind of thing um, so I try and look at the yeah, where each kid is at. Um, another one this year that I had, uh, or I noticed a lot in my kids is just even their core strength. And so some of the activities we were doing in gym, I couldn't figure out why they weren't able to do it. And then um, when somebody came in to observe my classroom, they said, you know, I think it's their core strength. They need to work on that first. Um, and a lot of my kids were lacking in it. So um, yeah, I don't know if that if that answers your question or if that's chunky. Um, no, yeah. Another thing we do is like we, we read a ton of books that are on a topic. So like a book on personal space. And then we might read that book for a couple of days and every opportunity in those days that I can reference the book and say like, oh, remember the personal space or remember what something in the book and have them practice it and then when they kind of start to get the hang of that we'll read another social story and another topic and we still consistently reinforce the idea of personal space while introducing another topic until they kind of have that one down pat and we don't need to reinforce it as much Um, but i find books is so awesome for introducing a, a concept or skill as well
0: Yeah. I like the example you said about, um, when it comes to writing, it might be their grip or their grasp. And, you know, that's a good way to really pinpoint it. You know, if you see a student. Uh, you know, someone just looks at a student and then looks like they're struggling with writing. All right. So what it is what is it about that they're struggling with the writing? Maybe are they getting confused with uppercase or lowercase? Are they getting confused? Like how to hold the, the, you know, the pen or the pencil. Uh, Maybe they don't all have the, you know, the, the muscle strength, the fine motor skills. So you really hone in when it comes to chunking on like, you know you have step one then you have step one a step one b step one c you know really hone in to see what is exactly that they need help with um that way you don't waste your time trying to teach other stuff that they already know but yeah i like that i like the example you gave and i know with a given pandemic situation it's a lot harder for certain students to practice these life skills um but even with what's going on, so for example, since I, I teach uh, VI distance learning, I try and coach the families on uh, giving their students uh, multiple opportunities to practice. Um, same thing as if we were in the classroom. Like, for example, like if I really want kids to work in their, you know, fine motor skills, you know, if, and if the families are going out and about or they're going to a grocery store or they're coming back to the house, I, in a simple example, I'll tell the families, that, you know, give your child the opportunity to open the door, like give them the keys and see if they can put it in and, you know, unlock the door and open the handle. Like that's a life skill right there. Give them the opportunities to do that or give the, you know, give the child the opportunity to, to zip up their code or, you know, give the opportunity, you know, for the child to, to open the door or, um, to the car or closing the truck drunk or even making their beds, like putting the clothes away, just giving many opportunities to actually um practice it and um, you know, for example, you can have students, uh, practice meal preparation by giving them a grocery list and, uh, you could provide pictures or icons and have the students, all right, help me find the salt or help me find the milk. And, you know, they go to the different aisles and then they help you find it. Um, and then even as well, like even when it comes to paying, you can give the money to the child and then the child gives the money to the, the clerk and again, there's that whole money management uh, opportunity right there. So I try and, and coach the families as much as I can try and incorporate these life skills, Cause we know it just, it doesn't end, uh, once we leave the classroom, you know, I got to practice it as much as I can, uh, everywhere else. Cause you know, when they're independent, you know, that we don't want them to rely too much on you know, on another adult, but mm-hmm. for you, I mean, do you, I mean, how important, how important is it to provide students like with opportunities to practice these life skills?
1: Yeah. I, it's so, so important. Like, just as you said, um, if they're practicing at school and not at home, it's, it's just not going to stick as well. And I think that like, even like, as you mentioned, the counting money, it's one thing to practice at school and um, practice with fake money or, or whatever you're doing in your classroom, but to actually be in the store and using those skills is a completely different setting. Um, and so if they can do it at home just to see how they can use that skill that they've learned at home in different situations and different environments and not just at school, um, and like I make, um, books about for the kids and I usually take a picture of them so they see themselves about a certain topic, um, for whatever life skill it is at school. And then I even send the books home with the kids so that they can read with their families and they're doing the same skill and practicing it the same way we did in class. But they have that opportunity to do it with their parents or their guardians at home um, but it's just it's the same as like a math skill like you would never um, or reading actually You're Like in kindergarten or grade one I feel like the most important thing or the thing you hear all the time is read at home or you have a reading log and reading at home is so important and I think that's just like the life skills and you practice it all day at school but you have to practice at home as well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a good point because if you you put in all this effort for all these life skills and then they're not practicing at home, then they're only half getting it. And like I know you know, I always worry for like the long, uh, the long vacations, like the winter break or even the summer, like, you know, how much did they actually practice working on, on everything we worked on? Um, because if they don't practice, they, you know, they most likely will end up regressing. So I, I try really emphasize the importance of it. And when in the classroom, um, you know, I know there are certain life skills that are difficult to practice. Um, especially like for example, the mobility and transportation trips, like some of these life schools, like some of the students that you know, their goals might be getting around the community. So that might mean like walking and crossing the street or getting on a bus or you know, things like that. Um, I try incorporate a lot of pretend play and that might mean turning my classroom into a little community. Uh, you know, I have a little red light or green light here and like, you know, tape on the floor to mimic uh, crossing the streets Cause you know, pretend play is, I hear a lot of things like, Oh, it's only for the, for the little ones, but it, you know, it actually works out for for everyone. Like pretend play could be like pretend, you know, mock interview. That could be an example as well. Um, so yeah. And you know, again, I think I mentioned this earlier with these life skills there's a lot of scaffolding that comes with these life skills. And basically you're just taking this big task and chunking it down to more manageable tasks. Um, <laughs> And we do this to not overwhelm the students, um, because for example, if I tell a kid like, or even if you tell an adult, like here, uh, here's this IKEA furniture. Go build it. Like, you know, it's gonna be really hard. You know, you have those are what the instructions are for. You, all know, right, do this step one, then step two, and then step three. Same thing with working with with the students. You know, we want them to work on these more manageable tasks and not overwhelm them. when we provide that controlled environment. Um, you know, for example, just if, uh, you know, new parents like if your child is walking, like great, you know, doesn't mean they're ready to start, you know, climbing Mount Everest. You know, you might have them keep working on those steps. You know, walking from the driver to the door, or you know, walking across the living room. It's all baby steps. And even in general education, uh, you can practice certain routines or procedures in the controlled environment before you go out and practice in, in the real world. Um, you know, there's several reasons why we do this. Uh, the main reason is we're trying to set up our students for success. Um, you know, cause for example, uh, I guess like crossing the street, you know, if you want the students like crossing the streets and get around in the community, you know, like you don't practice in the classroom with like the pretend play and you just, all right, you take them out, then it's going to be overwhelming. There's all these other factors that you have no control of. Like you have the noise, you have the cars, you have people walking by, but if you practice in the, in the classroom environment and slowly, slowly start adding more and more factors, um, then, you know, you are building the students up for success. Like maybe you can add noises in the classroom. Maybe you can add moving parts in the classroom and maybe you can, uh, you know, at other parts, other people walking on by and slowly, slowly building up to kind of, uh, simulate what it would be like in the real world, you know, little by little. Um, and so let's see an example that I have, uh, for life skills is, for example, um, one of them might be like personally, it's like personal hygiene and my student struggles turning off the water. Um, And I only really need to focus on this this part of the life skill because they're able to turn on the water, they're able to put on the soap, they're able to scrub, but they just struggle with turning off the water. And so I'm chunking it down and I can really focus on that specific part. Um, another example might be, you know, putting on shoes and they struggle with lacing and I can only focus on the lacing part. They know how to put on the shoe. They know how to, I guess, pull on the laces, tighten it, but it actually comes to, to lacing and actually tying that knot. Um, but I mean, for you, what, what do you think is like the best way that you found to practice these life skills in the classroom? Like, do you have a dedicated time um, in the classroom to incorporate it or do you just do it on the spot?
1: Yeah, so I I think I do both. I do some dedicated time. Like, as I mentioned, the books are, in my opinion, the best tool to introduce a concept to the kids. Um, And like my class, we're really focused on... Or right now, at least we're really focused on social interaction. So a lot of our books are about fair play and asking for help and things like that. Um, so from there, then we model. So myself and the educational assistant in my room, we might model to the kids what that looks like. We might get a couple kids to demonstrate which they really love because they get to come sure. to the front and show their friends how great they are. <laughs> um, and then we also play lots of games. And the one this year that I have found, it's so simple. The card game Go Fish is like <laughs> they have so much fun with it. They're practicing, taking turns, waiting, like waiting their turn, listening to their friend whose turn it is ask for whatever card they need. Um, they have to practice asking their friend by name, like Susie, do you have, um, identifying what they want, and what they need in an appropriate way. Um, just all these kind of social interactions and life skills in this one game, but they don't even see it that way. They just think they're playing go fish. But, (laughs) um, yeah, just things like that. Like we, we model, we demonstrate, and then I would say games and, um, yeah, you can turn it into a game.
0: Kids love games. <laughs> yeah, they don't even know they're being taught uh, something right there when they're playing the games. Uh, yeah, I like that. How you, uh, you know, uh, Calling, calling each other's names that's that's a big one because um, you know I don't want them like hey you or like you know just tagging yeah. a kid yeah, they, they should know their classmates and you know in the beginning of the school year I had my kids identifying their name and then identifying their picture and then after that we slowly moved on to identifying the other classmates and then identifying like who's here and who's not here so you know the whole again trying to build a classroom community but yeah that's a you know that's a great life skill being able to recognize, recognize and identify people who are present or not present Man, uh, yeah, I like that idea about the goldfish um, when you know talking about these life skills it's it's great when we execute but you know if we want to take a step backwards and trying to figure out how to start and planning these life skills it can actually be a little bit overwhelming um you know trying to figure out all right what do i do what am i going to teach how am i going to teach it but the way i approach it is by first trying to assess the current levels of my students and this means a lot of feedback so since we started off distance learning, it required a lot of uh, asking the parents. So we had like dedicated video call sessions and like, all right, asking the parents, um, what is it that they think their, their student needs help with? What are their strengths? um, What are the areas of improvements? And then for those families that couldn't meet with me, I would just send them a survey and then I would just have that section. Like, is there anything else you want to say? Um, and I know, you know, it's, you can also just flat out ask the the students to perform life skills and then you can track it right there, track those certain life skills and um, you could see whether or not the students were exposed to it Um, because I've been shocked before. Like I asked something and then I'm actually shocked how much the student knows. And I guess they're they're just very observant that they observe, uh, they see something and then they're able to replicate it once and um, I've been shocked a couple of times, um, but yeah. So then basically after finding out the current levels and I talk with the whole team, so psychologists, the uh, occupational therapists, the speech, uh, the speech pathologist talking with the whole team, when you try and create these smart goals, which basically means the goals are realistic and attainable. So then I try and figure out like a blueprint of like, all right, how are we going to do this? Um, what's the best way to do this? What's what's available? Because again, it's distance learning. So it's a little trickier um, since we're not in person. So what I would ask, like, what resources families have at home, what we can actually do. <clears throat> and then let uh, me go from there, whether or not, all right, the student really, really benefit from a one-on-one or maybe even small groups. uh Uh, maybe the student will really benefit from this type of technology or maybe student really benefits from like these hands-on activities. And, you know, I'm a big believer of, uh, you know, homogeneous groups when it comes to life skills, because that way I can group students together that are all working on towards like the same life skills. For example, it might be telling time and I can work with them all together. And, you know, these students might know how to read digital time while these other students are ready to learn analog so that's that that's basically how I started. A lot of interviewing, trying to see asking the parents what it is they know because parents are the adults, they should know their kid best. And then sometimes I just uh I ask the student to do something and you know, I assess right there on the spot what it is they know. And again, sometimes I get shocked what it is they do know. But for you, what is the planning process for you when teaching these life skills?
1: Um, yeah, I would, I would really agree with you. And uh, like the beginning of the year is really crucial and it's really important. Um, so just start investigating, reading past IPPs or past reports, all that kind of stuff. What, um, Medical, any medical reports, all that kind of thing, um, because as you said, like there's so much out there already for you talking to the parents. So instead of trying to learn it all yourself, just <laughs> read the reports because it'll help you. It'll give you a baseline, and then yeah, just asking the kids and just a lot of observation, seeing what they can and can't do, and then go from there. And that's when I bring up my books and my social uh-huh. stories, or um, and then also too, like as you mentioned, the OTs, the SLPs, like my school has or our division. I don't know if this is everywhere, but we have really great help and people that come in and observe and say, I think this child needs this. And last year, like I think the thing that I didn't do well enough was use those people as much as i could have like i just let them come in and tell me on the days that they observed like oh i think this child needs this and then i just wouldn't talk to them until they came in again you know in a month or so um and that's not what they're there for they're there for you to email them and say okay i've noticed this what what do you think i should do here and that's their job—is to help you and give you resources and tips and strategies. So, use those people.
0: Yeah, definitely use them because they—they provide a lot of great resources um, for the for you to use. Uh, for example, like the OT, like you provide great resources on how. To have the students hold the pens and hold the hold the markers. Mm-hmm. Um and the speech pathologists might have great resources, like communication boards, how to you know, how to have them use sentence frames to just say what it is, what they want, what they need, how they're feeling. Uh yeah, that's yeah, they're, they're there, you know, take advantage of <laughs> take advantage of them. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean only like talking when they're in the classroom, send out those emails or stop by or reach out to them. Like, Hey, do you have any suggestions trying to do this? Or, Hey, I'm teaching this to my student. Is there anything else you would recommend or any- anything you would want me to work on with the students? Cause uh, we really should be working alongside with them and uh, not just like whenever they stop by. So, and I guess this, this kind of ties in back what I was saying about, uh, practicing life skills in the classroom and getting the students ready to practice in the community. Um, I can start with general goals uh, like counting money. And then, you know, once they master that uh, with other necessary skills and I can plan a community trip to put all these schools skills together. So they count coins and then they count dollar bills and then they add them together and then they subtract together. And then, you know, figuring out which is more, which is less. And then figure out, uh, you know, if we start, if do we have enough to buy? So basically, uh, like scaffolding, like adding the skills on top of each other and as they master and master these skills. And then once I feel ready, then we can take everything we learn and try and put it together all at once and uh, maybe a community trip. And so it's a lot of role playing. Um, which can be a hard concept to understand for some of our students, but you know, r- with routine and sometimes really like precise instructions for modeling, it can lead to great success. Uh, and with this role playing, and it, it, you know, you had to put a lot of enthusiasm into it because I know we do the same thing over and over again, Um, you know, to a different teacher, it might look a little bit boring doing the same thing over and over again. All right. You know, what's your name? All right. How do we spell? All right. You know, what day of the week is it? You know, it might get boring, but we got to like teach it. Like it's the first time we're seeing it. (laughs) We got to have that enthusiasm. Um, Do you do a lot of role playing with life skills? And has there been a lot of success with that? Yeah. Um, I, you know,
1: role modeling and demonstrating and all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's so important in the classroom and um, my favorite psychologist, Dr. Jody Carrington just from my home province <laughs> says that you can't tell kids you have to show them. And I think that that is like my new life motto as a teacher. Um, just like any other concept you teach in school, like math, you would never just tell a kid how to do addition and then not let them practice it and not show them. <laughs> you would obviously yeah. demonstrate model, like have them try and have them practice it. And I think that that goes for everything, including life skills. Um, yeah, yeah. You just, you have to show them.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, if somebody told me back when I was 16, all right, this is how you drive a car and then they just put a yeah. video. <laughs> all right. That's not gonna, it's not gonna work out. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. I, I like that idea. Um, and so like I guess that leads into our next topic, which is teaching life skills for reducing aggressive behavior. Um, and for my students, I have a lot, I have several students who were basically one of the life skills of self coping because trying to teach them how to find like healthier ways of expressing their, their emotions instead of just kicking or screaming or, or throwing a tantrum. <laughs> And there are misconceptions about students doing self-harm, whether hitting themselves or pulling their hair might be attention seeking or a manipulative behavior. But in most cases, these students aren't really trying to seek their attention. They just don't know how to express their frustration. They don't know how to express what it is that they want. Um, And so can you imagine, you know, having a difficult time trying to communicate with others and no one understands you? And so you know, what's that going to be? You're going to get upset. If no one's going to understand, you're going to get upset and, you know, you might throw something, you might hit something. And sometimes that might lead to self-harm, like pulling the hair or, you know, slamming your hands on the desk. Um, and this is where self-coping skills come to play because, you know, at the end of the day, we do want to provide these healthy alternatives for these students. You know, When they do get frustrated and we do also want to acknowledge that, Hey, uh, you're feeling upset or you're, you're feeling, sad and you know, it's totally valid, but let's, you know, let's find another way to, to express our emotions. And there are kind of three main strategies that I do want to focus with uh, self-coping. And the first one is visuals. The second is role-playing and the last one is replacement behavior. So with visuals, basically I model be myself, I, I model the behavior myself. So this is like visual reminders, uh, usually with icons or maybe in social stories. Like what do you do? You, you do a lot of stories and that's great. Um, it could be, tell the students to count down or take a breath or, uh, maybe even say certain affirmations. And I have students practice telling me they're upset, um, whether it's receptively or expressively and, um, you can have them use the communication boards with icons. So I feel or I want, and they fill they fill it in with those icons. Are uh, you providing those sentence frames as well? Um, what's your experience with using uh like self self coping skills with I guess certain aggressive behaviors? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I love this talk and I could talk about it for hours. So I won't, I won't talk too much about it, but, um, I think it's really important also to remember that, um, every child is so different when it comes to coping skills and what works for one is probably not going to work for another. So at the, again, the beginning of a year is going to be a lot of trial and error, just figuring out what works for them, what is maybe triggering them or what, um, I don't know if I love that word trigger, but I use it all the time, but you know, like what's the antecedent kind of gets them upset or yeah. yeah. Um. So for example, like last year I had a child who he would run out of the classroom when he got upset. And so obviously we would go after him um, and that seemed to just escalate his behavior, but it took us a long time to figure out that he wasn't running away. He just was running to a corner because he needed to sit down with his head down and be alone. So once we realized that that, was what he needed to calm down. And I was totally okay with that because that's obviously what he needed. So I would just send out the educational assistant that I worked with to just kind of watch him from afar. Um and then after a while she would check on him to see if he was ready or able to tell and he was able to tell her actually, um, like she would say, Are you ready to come back? And he would say yes or no. And then over time he was able to come back a little bit quicker. Like he and didn't need as much alone time. And that's when we started to introduce other strategies like um, a code word when he was starting to feel angry. Um, if we noticed little things that we thought, OK, I think this is about to become an episode, we would offer him choices um, like those. Uh, I forget what they're called. Like, um, kind of controlled choices of um, do you want to go for a walk or do you want to sit in this share for a minute. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. And um, so they pick how they want to kind of control that situation, but you're still giving them the opportunity to um, calm down. And um, yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway is just learning that kid and what they need. um, And also remembering it's not going to overnight that you come up with a solution and everything's fine the next day. These strategies take a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, And uh, I think another thing um, and this is just something that I learned last year too is I would often try um, to calm a kid down when they were already in that really aggressive state. And what I learned is that that strategy is not gonna work and that child is not listening. And when they get so fired up like that, then and they're in that aggressive state, their brain is in fight or flight mode. And the science, the research has told us that they actually cannot hear you. Um, so if your child does get to that aggressive state, the best thing that you can do is try and talk to them before it gets to that state or about 30 minutes after. Um, but once they're in that, that um, aggressive uh, yeah, state, it, don't try and talk to them, just try and help them
0: regulate again yeah yeah that's a good point i mean if i'm if i'm upset and you're trying to like you know get me to that calm point and you know i'm already at the moment like all right i'm at the point of no return
1: (laughs) yeah it's uh, like if someone's saying like you're upset and somebody's saying just calm down
0: you're like i'm not gonna calm down yeah yeah it only yeah only escalates it further Um, yeah um yeah so i know i mentioned this before um many times but uh (laughs) role-playing. So uh, role-playing for, you know, aggressive and and self-injury is another great strategy. If we put students, again, like you said, in a controlled scenario where we anticipate the aggression or the self-harm you know, we know how they're going to react and we know the triggers and we're trying to work towards coaching them, how to overcome these triggers or even just finding replacement behavior. And I try and teach the students uh, what we can do um, instead in a situation like this. And basically these role playing helps the students go through the motions um, and the procedures of what we should do. And so you know, you and I have stressed this uh, time and time again, but repetition is key. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, It's not, you know, you're not going to have a breakthrough like, all right, we did this once. You should be good to go. No, it's it's a, it's a repetition. (laughs) And with role-playing, I know there's a stigma as well that, you know, certain things can trigger the students and let's just avoid it altogether. I know that there's that stigma, like, all right, if if this gets the student upset, let's just avoid it. Um, But it's not going to happen in the real world. I mean, For example, like, uh, you know, a certain thing like triggers me. I can't avoid this in the real world all the time. Um, say someone honking like might trigger me and might get me upset. Uh, you know, I can't avoid it at all times. Um, like, like an example, like we had a fire drill and one of the triggers for the students is to sound the alarm and you know this kid starts the child starts crying you put the hands over their ears and it triggers uh, that, uh, that aggressive behavior and the student's trying to they're trying to express to me that they don't like the sound and it's upsetting them. But to someone else who might not know, they see this aggressive students because the students might be pinching me or trying to hit me, but they're really trying to get my attention and let me know. I don't like the sound. It's, it's bothering me. It's hurting me. Um, you know, but in, in a situation like that, you know, I want to practice on finding, you know, what we can do in se- instead, because again, there's certain things that we won't have control over. Like I can't just avoid certain things in, in the real world. And so when we practice role-playing, um, it's all controlled and we can slowly scaffold the strategy with the students. Um, you know, we can either push forward or scale back on whatever we want. Uh, I guess maybe in that example, like we can do maybe practice that alarm, but maybe at a, a much lower volume and then little by little start increasing. it. And so, you know, once it's at that, that volume that it would be in the real world. And we already helped the students go through the motions and they're used to it. Um, and I have a lot of families who, you know, try and give in to whatever their students are, uh, whenever they're showing aggression, and I know it's really hard and I it's, it's easier said than done, um, because some families, they just, they want to cave in, they, they would give in, they don't want to see their child crying. They don't want to see their children being aggressive, Um, but I I really try and tell the families, like, you know, let's go through the motions, you know, repetition and repetition, um, and the whole scaffolding, uh, um, especially if we want to work on a particular behavior and I don't like using the word trigger as well, but if we want to trigger that behavior so that we can work on that behavior, (laughs) certain families are hesitant because like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, make my son or, or you know, daughter or my child uh, upset. But you know, in reality, we, we, we got to go through it. We got to go through the motions. We got to help them <clears throat> how to find a healthier replacement uh, behavior. And I know this is really hard for families. Um, have you ever been in a situation like this where, you know, families might be hit, hesitant uh, trying to find a replacement behavior because it means triggering that particular behavior, um, particularly, you know, with the role, playing or do the families just avoid it altogether?
1: um you know i actually haven't really encountered any families being opposed to it um yeah so I, I guess i can't really be gone too much but um i think just having a long conversation with parents at the beginning of the year when you're talking about goals and, and strategies and stuff um and just um I think parents from my experience have just been happy to see that you have strategies and are working on it with their children and so I'd say in that situation um, if anyone else has that problem just really explaining like why you're doing what you're doing and um, if you have any research to back you up kind of like pulling out the the books <laughs> and that um, to show them and, and things like that just showing like this is going to help your child and and these are strategies that are that are going to have good outcomes so it's hard
0: but this is why we're doing what we're doing yeah that's uh, yeah that's a good point again really uh bringing back like you know i'm not doing this just to make your child a sad one i'm not doing this just to give yeah. you a hard time and trying to do this so like uh, what can we do or how what can we do to replace this behavior um yeah and so you know the role playing does lead to replacement behavior um i think like earlier i said you can't just take away something from the routine or we can't avoid a certain behavior altogether. We do want to replace it. Um, and, uh, this is where replacement behavior comes into play. And it's important to know that the replacement behavior is, you know, it's completely plausible um, for students to do on their own. Um, of course the big picture is you know, independent life skills. So some frequent behavior uh, replacements that I use is asking for help. So I have a student that when they get upset at like, Particularly in art. So when we're in art, if, you know, they don't trace the line perfectly or they don't cut or glue, then they start getting upset and they, they throw a tantrum. And so what I'm trying to do is have the student ask for a break, like take a breath, count to 10, I'm basically acknowledging like I'm going to get upset or I'm already upset. And this is what I can do to calm myself. And i some of them might be counting down, taking a breath. And so these replacement behaviors don't actually require any special materials. You might have an icon um, as well, but these things can can be done on their own for the students. Like you can really teach the students to do these replacement behaviors on their own. Uh, another replacement behavior that could be is uh, sensory items um, to help relieve the, the stress that the students might having. I uh, have the student might be fidgety and constantly picking or biting his nails or trying to squeeze something or pinch. And so I could provide a, uh something to help, uh, replace that. And so, um, I, I know a really popular thing is those, like the weighted blankets or the weighted pillows or the stress balls and you know, have the students have that weighted blanket on their lap or might have that stress ball to squeeze or even, I'm not sure what they're called, but like these textured, uh, pads, um, that I have students put on their feet and like they, they, they take off their shoes and then they rub their feet on these different textured pads. It might be like artificial grass or these like rip bumps. Um, but yeah, it's trying to help these students uh, out with their their behavior, whether it's aggressive or they might just have uh, anxiety. And so yeah, those are two examples right there. You have something that requires no n- no real materials and something that does require materials. And even when families are on the go or when they're outside the classroom, uh, one of my families <coughs> recently started introducing this, I think it's like a, like a silicone necklace because the student's constantly putting everything in their mouth. Um, and so she provided this this necklace, this, this silicone necklace. And so the student puts it in their mouth, and they're actually able to focus better. And mm-hmm. uh, I, you know that, that's really neat. You know, you can have things like that, or even a bracelet or a stress ball. So you know, with, you know, with that being said, I mean, how do you decide uh, what replacement behaviors you want for your students, or like even what materials you want to use?
1: Yeah, I think um, this one, again, like it really depends on each child. So it's, um, again, beginning of the year, just figuring out a lot of trial and error. Um, and I also think, again, with the um, I think I mentioned earlier, like with strategies and stuff, it's like you're not going to try one and it just magically fixes yeah. all the problems. So don't give up if you try it once and it didn't work quite the way you wanted to um, try it a few times, stick with it for a while. And then if you don't see improvement try something else um but some of the ones i like as you said the breathing like that takes no tools or no extra um, materials. Another one that we use a lot in my classroom is just going for a walk around the school. That's kind of my go-to if I notice a student is um, feeling a little upset. And we have one boy in particular who, um, he really likes that strategy. And so usually I have to say, would you like to go for a walk? And he'll say yes. And then the other day he <laughs> said, he came out to me and said, I need to go for a walk. And I was like, oh, say no more, let's go. <laughs> Especially if you're telling me that you really need to go. Um, and sensory items are good and I've used them a few times um, and so one thing because I have a few students who then you know you give one like a stress ball or something and they're like oh they have a toy I want a toy um, and so we always introduce it as a tool and explain to the child like this is a tool um, for you to use when you are feeling sad or whatever the feeling is um, like I have one boy who sometimes struggles when he walks to the bus at the end of the day um, he doesn't want to leave the classroom and we have a lot of trouble getting him out the door. So but he loves cars. And so I gave him it's a walking tool and it's this little toy green car which of course he loves and they say okay this car is not a toy it looks like it's not a toy and it's a tool to help you walk to the bus and so then he's excited to have this car tool because those cars it's going to help him magically to get to the bus <laughs> um just things like that and yeah i think it's just again lots of trial and error and there's so many ideas out there so don't be afraid to try new things and see what works
0: Yeah, I like the idea you mentioned. Like, this is not a toy; this is a tool. Uh, Because I think a couple years ago, those fidget spinners were pretty popular. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So, most people saw it as toys, but it could also be, you know, as a stress reliever and. Um, yeah, it's a good point though. It's not a toy. Um, because you know, if another student might see that, Oh, why does, you know, why does Sarah get to play with her toys? Or oh, why does Jimmy get this? Like, it's not, it's not a toy. It's, it's to help them out. Um, and I explained to the student, you have your own, you, yours might be a book. You might be going for a walk. You might be going on the trampoline that we have over there in the corner. So yeah, it's, it's different for, for every student. And that's a very good point. Um, and so I think the most important part of teaching life skills for me or for even just aggression or self-harm is reflection. Uh, just kind of how we reflect on the decisions we make all the time. So, you know, sometimes like, oh, I think to myself, like, you know, when you reflect, oh, uh, I shouldn't have done this or that went really well. We want our students to do the same thing as well. Um, and we want to reflect on their actions uh, or even the actions that they didn't do. So we can praise when the students don't show aggressions or when they didn't yell when they didn't, knock down the chair, or throw something across, you know, across the room, we can praise them like, Oh, I like how you had calm hands and you had quiet mouth or I like how you're sitting quietly. Um, and you can even, you know, even praise the partial success because for example, if a student's supposed to sit down for two minutes and just attend, like, but they only do it for 30 seconds and normally they only last five seconds, you know, that's, that's a win for me. So you know, definitely definitely uh definitely praise those small successes. Um I could say to a student, like, Oh, I really like how you stop hating yourself and counted a ten and these self-reflections uh are a great time to figure out what strategies are working with the students. And you can even ask the students, like, do you think this is working? Do you like it? Like, you know, uh, like the example you had the student who asked, like, I needed, I need to go out for a walk and he said, all right, go ahead, you know, say no more. That's a, that's a great opportunity right there because, uh, You know, that's you knowing that the student recognizes like this strategy works for me um, and I'm asking the teacher for help or asking the teacher if I can go for a walk. So a lot of self-reflection. And you can also present a situation where you ask the student, like, do you think this is working or even ask the family members like it might be working great at school, but it's not working so well at home. And then you can ask the families, all right, you know, what can we do? Maybe we could change it up a little bit. I'm um, you know, trying to trying to see what we can always do to improve it, and um, you can ask the student like, which one worked better? Did it work better when you went for a walk? Did it work better when you to our affirmation corner or sensory corner? And have them think about their decisions. Uh, and I think also earlier you asked like, would you rather read a book or count to ten? Like, when you offer those those uh, those choices, and I I, I like how. It, by offering these choices and offering this reflection, um, we get a better outcome and these students really think like, Oh, this worked out well for me. And if, if I did this, maybe it wouldn't have worked out for me and students are able to recognize, um, what works well for them. And so hopefully the next time, uh, it'll be unprompted when they, they try and, you know, do these replacement behaviors. Do you use a lot of reflections with life skills? yeah I
1: try to um yeah the same thing um kind of as you said like after a kid has done something whether it's good or bad um saying how did that make you feel or or even asking like if a friend um maybe comes up to ask them to play. Then maybe I'll say after, like, how did you how did that make you feel when so and so asked you to play with them? And oh, it made me feel great. And oh, hmm, (laughs) I wonder how (laughs) you kind of wonder aloud and they answer their own question. and I also have a friend who works in a behavior specific classroom, and so she has them do I can't I think it's called a healing circle, um, but they have the opportunity to sit and talk with all of the other students. And of course, this class is small; it's about five students. Um, but they talk about the incident and how they have a chance to hear the other students how it made them feel. So, if someone threw a desk or something, another student might say, "You know, I felt really scared when you did that." And that student might say, "Like, wow, I you know I had no idea that." me doing that made an impact on you. Like I think sometimes they don't realize the impact they have on the other people in the class. Um, So just having that kind of self-reflection and, or even saying, yeah, like, again, you can't ask them when they're in the aggressive episode because (laughs) you're not listening, but you know, 30 minutes later saying when you were kicking such and such, how did, did that make you feel good? Was that a, did you feel happy? And obviously the answer is going to be no. And so then you say, Oh, hmm, I wonder how we can, do something differently next time so that doesn't happen or i wonder what ways we can let out our anger next time that doesn't make us feel so sad and things like that
0: Yeah. That's, that's a great, great, great point. How you mentioned how, when they reflect how their decisions or their actions might affect other students in the classroom. Or you can even ask, how do you think it made me feel? Like when you pinch me, how do you think it made me feel? Do you think I felt happy or do you think like, Oh, that hurts. Uh, So that's a great way to, to reflect how others are feeling. And Um, You can use, like you said, use other students example, like, you know, when Tommy's yelling his head off, like, how does that make you feel? Do you, do you feel relaxed or do you feel stressed? And you can let them uh, see. Reflect on the how our actions affect others, and how other people's actions you know affect us. Um, and I think I think you also mentioned briefly that you use uh you, know, you use the stories right, those social stories, and uh, really use those social stories to reflect on certain behaviors and, and life skills. I like that. Um, as we wrap this episode up, is there any advice that you give to future teachers, or maybe those just thinking about entering the educational field? I'm
1: say, um, just get as much experience as you can in the classroom, whether that's volunteering or um, even in your practicum, I think I don't know how it works in the States, but for us like you're, you're assigned to one classroom but if you ask your mentor teacher, like, hey, do you mind if I check out a couple other classrooms while I hear, maybe for a block or two, um, just see how everybody else runs their classroom and how everyone else teaches because um, there is no right way to teach. And teachers have been doing this for years and they love to share their ideas <laughs> and share the resources. So why reinvent the wheel? Um, I just think that getting that experience is a million times more valuable than anything you can learn in university. Um, and it also looks better on a resume. So <laughs> just get out there and get experience.
0: Yeah. And um, because I'm lucky my um, my, you know, my principal actually allows me to, to have days off to go observe another teacher so um. that's a that's a nice part there because you know teachers we're not selfish individuals we want to help each other out no, so
1: yeah.
0: definitely take definitely take advantage collaborate with your you know, same grade level teacher or collaborate with the other teacher you know collaborate you know if you're gen ed collaborate with special ed and you know vice versa because um, you know, at the end of the day you know we're all here for the students so yeah Mm. all right and this has been another episode of teachers care society i want to say thank you to today's guest avery and most importantly you listeners see you next
1: time